Proverbs chapter number 7, and I'd like to begin reading in uh, verse number 1, and we'll read down to verse number 23. Proverbs chapter number 7, verse number 1. The Word of God says, My son, keep my words, lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart. Say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. For at the window of my house I looked through my casement, and beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding. Passing through the street near her corner, this strange woman, passing through the street near her corner, And he went the way to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now is she without, now in the streets, and lieth in wait at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. For the good man is not at home. He is gone a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter or as an fool to the correction of the stocks till a dart strike through his liver as a bird hasteth to the snare and knoweth not that it is for his life. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the house of God. Thank you for Sundays, Lord. Uh, thank you for a day to gather in your house, to lend this much focus and, and attention upon you, Lord. I, I love the Wednesday night prayer meeting and how vital that it is. But, Lord, I want to thank you on this Sunday for Sundays, for an opportunity to gather in this place with your people. I thank you for the work you've already done in our hearts and lives today. And I pray that you continue to minister the truth of thy word unto us. Lord, we need to hear from you. We don't just need to hear about you, Lord. We need to hear from you. And I pray that you'd speak directly to our hearts through the power of the word of God, through the ministration of the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we be receptive. May we have our hearts open to the truth of thy word that we may be eternally changed. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things now in Christ's name. Amen. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that the book of Proverbs was penned by Solomon, the son of David. Solomon was a man whose life, though not by any means without stain and reproach, was known in the word of God as the wisest man to ever live aside from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God used Solomon in tremendous ways. He presided over the kingdom 
of uh, Israel, the the joined together, conjoined kingdom, when it was still whole and during what many commentators have called the golden age of Israel's rule. They ruled more territory, they had more money, they had more military splendor and prowess during Solomon's reign than at any other time in their history. In many ways, uh, Solomon serves as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ reigning in millennial glory one day to come. But I think the greatest contribution that Solomon probably made uh, to your life and to my life is the portions of the Word of God that the Holy Spirit inspired him and gave him to pin down for you and for I. This, of course, includes the book of Ecclesiastes, but this book before us tonight, Proverbs, it serves as a sort of, I, I guess I'll use this term, sort of a potpourri of wisdom. It is uh, an, an assembly of, of statements that are not just wise, humanly speaking, but are injected with and, and birthed in the inerrancy of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they serve for us as a compass for wise living in our life. Solomon, when he pinned these things down, He wrote them really in his heart. He was thinking of his son, Rehoboam, knowing that one day Rehoboam would ascend the throne and have many decisions to have to make. And, you know, I found this to be true in my life. There's a lot of things that I labor for. And I don't know. I'm praying the Lord comes back soon. Amen. But I do find that as uh, the years tick on, I'm giving more and more attention to trying to do something that's going to help my children. I want to leave something behind. I ain't just talking about money that the government can tax and steal. I ain't just talking about uh, stuff. But I'm talking about a spiritual heritage that they have and that they can gain encouragement from. And Solomon evidently sought to do this very same thing. When you go through the book of Proverbs, you'll find all manner of style of wisdom that he'll speak of and style of writing and the way that he'll present it. And here in chapter number 7, we have wisdom set forth in what we could call a narrative form. Now, I don't know, if I'm to be frank with you, whether Solomon is telling a real story that he observed. It's entirely possible that that's true. Or whether this is wholly figurative in its language. But I do know this, that whether or not this scene played out before him in uh, the everyday world, or whether it's merely something uh, that he has meditated on and is setting in prose for you and for I, I do know that the the implications of this passage hold nonetheless. I was talking to someone the other day, and uh, we were talking about what sin is. Sin is the act of disobeying God. Sin is not a person. It's not an entity. Sin is not an evil spirit. Sin is the act of disobeying God. Now, I believe there are evil spirits in the world, and I believe they'd be tickled to death if you sinned. But sin is an act. It is a commission of our will, us deciding to do something. Listen, I know you uh, want to... Listen, Flip was wrong. The devil didn't make you do it. You chose to do it, just as I choose to sin. And sin, rather than being a, a person, sin is an act of disobeying the word and law of God. However, there are times, just a handful, in fact, I can only really think of two in the Bible, in which sin is figuratively personified. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, where the Bible presents truths to us and almost talks as though sin 
were a person. One of those occasions is whenever Solomon's father David goes in unto Bathsheba and commits adultery and the prophet Nathan comes to David and tells a parable, a story about a man that slays his neighbor's sheep to feed what the Bible calls was a traveler. It says the traveler came by. And in many ways that traveler represents certainly the desire of Satan in David's life, certainly temptation, but even sin itself. Maybe even the flesh could be spoken and referenced in that same breath. And, you know, can I just tell you this? This isn't my message tonight. But sooner or later, the traveler's going to come by. You better be ready for it. Temptation's going to come knocking sooner or later. You better be ready for it. But here in Solomon's account, we have another example of sin being sort of personified in a figurative way. However, in this circumstance, it was not uh, sin coming by the house of the uh, of the uh, person in David's life, of the farmer there. But rather, it is a simple one, an ignorant individual, a foolish young man that instead travels too closely to sin's dwell. And Solomon's going to talk about the impact and effect of that in this young man's life. Before he gets into that, though, he has some statements to make about wisdom generally. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the spiritual application of knowledge. It's knowing the truth of God and applying it in obedience unto him. And Solomon's had much already to say about wisdom, but he's going to talk about it in these first few verses. And he he emphasizes five truths here, four truths here, excuse me. Notice what he says, verse 1. He says, my son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Now, Solomon was speaking of his own words and his own commandments, but something you and I know that even Solomon didn't know is at least the portion of his instruction that is recorded in the book of Proverbs is not just the words of Solomon, it's the words of God. It's not just the commandments of Solomon to his son, but it's the commandments of God to his children as well. And then he says this in verse 2, keep my commandments and live. And my law is the apple of thine eye. In other words, let me say number one tonight, he talks about the priority of wisdom. Notice how strong a language that Solomon uses. Hey, he says, hey, you want to live? Keep my commandments. Can I say to you tonight, child of God, keep his commandments and live. You want your life to be something worth living? Let me tell you something. There's a lot of people walking around living lives uh, that I wouldn't give a plug nickel for. But I'm glad the child of God doesn't have to live uh, a life of misery. I'm not saying your life is going to be free of trouble, but it also don't have to be free of joy. I'm glad we can live a life that is worthy of the salvation that God has purchased for us. Hey, uh, your, your life was purchased at great price. Does your living reflect that? Does your living reflect that? He says, keep my commandments and live. And people say, oh, preacher, you make too much of it. It ain't like it's life or death. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. How you treat this Bible is life or death in your life. He says, keep my commandments and live. And then he says this in my law as the apple of thine eye. Now, I don't know what apple loving person said it first, but somewhere along the line, this terminology came to be common. Of speaking is that which you love the most, that which you cherish the most. It, for me, and it probably be, it, for me, it'd be the ribeye of my eye. Amen. But God's a lover of apples, and I guess we should love them too because of that. So He calls it the apple of thine eye, and that terminology reflects the idea of that which is most precious to you. So, preacher, what's Solomon saying? He's saying this is how important wisdom is. It's so important that your life being worth living. 
is predicated on what you do with the truth, the word of God. And it is so precious and so important and so vital to you that there ought to be nothing in your life that you love the way you love the word of God. Talks about the priority of wisdom. Verse three, he talks about the familiarity with wisdom. He says, bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart. When he speaks of binding it upon your finger, he's describing something that at one time before technology eradicated this practice was very common. And that's when a person wanted to remember something. Often they'd tie a string around their finger. And it was a way of reminding them uh, that they had something that they needed to do. My problem is I'd forget what the string was about. Amen. Go, Who tied that string around my finger? But they would tie that string around their finger as a reminder. It was a way binding and hindering the dexterity of their hand and having it there where it would be ever present and always gaining attention from them. And then he says this, write them upon the table of thine heart. Your heart is uh, that which is most dear to you. Your heart is the innermost thoughts of your soul and your existence. And here's what he says. You ought to be so familiar with the word of God that everywhere you look, it's present there. Everything that you think about, it's present there. That it's in the deep parts of your life and that it's even tied around your finger as a constant reminder of how you need to live. Talks about the priority of wisdom, the familiarity with wisdom. Then verse 4, he says this, say unto wisdom. Here we have this figurative language. Of course, wisdom is an act just as sin is an act. And so we don't say unto wisdom, but he's using figurative language. He says, say unto wisdom, thou art my sister... And call understanding thy kinswoman. What is he speaking of? What's he reflecting? I think he's trying to communicate the idea of the responsibility that a male in in a home would have to the women that were a part of his own family. And uh, you would have a responsibility to a sister who's still dwelling in the home to watch over her and to take care of her. And of course, in the Old Testament, the story of Ruth reminds us of the responsibility of the kinsman to the kinswoman in the story of Boaz and of Ruth. And I think what Solomon's probably got in mind here is the responsibility to wisdom. In other words... That as wisdom is there and therefore must be tended to, or as that that woman is there and therefore must be tended to, so likewise when wisdom is present in your life, you have a responsibility to tend to it and to see to the matter. Can I tell you something? I mentioned a little bit this morning. Hey, this Bible can be a dangerous book if you read it and disregard it. It's going to bring a lot of accountability in your life that otherwise maybe would not be there. I'm certainly not suggesting that people would be better off to not read their Bibles. I'm saying they'd be better off to read them and obey them. Amen. And uh, when we have wisdom in our life, listen, we are we're a blessed people. Uh, we, we've had more exposure to Bible preaching. You hear people complain all the time about how everything's awful and terrible today and talk about the good old days. I'm going to make a controversial statement. I, and this might hair lip you, but I don't care. I mean, these overalls, I can run faster than you. Amen. But I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm not speaking to myself when I say this, so understand that. I'm setting my, I'm excluding myself from the statement I'm about to make. But really, if I'm going to be honest, I think Bible preaching is better today than it was 40 years ago. Now, that's not altogether true. There were preachers of that day that can far out preach anyone walking around today, and there are some pitiful preachers. You've got one here tonight, amen, uh, in this day and age. 
But Bible preaching, hey, listen, preachers tend to be more Bible preaching today, preaching the truth of the Word of God. And that's, of course, not true across the board. Uh, but it is true that we have access, and maybe that's more of a fair statement. We have access to more Bible preaching today than we probably ever had at any time throughout human history. That brings with it a great responsibility. You can't get light and then walk in darkness and think God's not going to have something to say about it. Speaks about the responsibility to wisdom. Then verse five, he says this, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. He talks about the safety in wisdom, that wisdom had the ability to keep them from some situations that they were ill equipped to face. And that could be devastating in their life. And can I tell you, the safest thing you can do in your life is to walk in the wisdom of the word of God. We, we spend lots of energy preparing our young people for the world. I think we ought to spend more time preparing them for the Lord, amen, than for the world. But let me even say this. You want to prepare your young person for the world. The best thing you can do is give them a biblical foundation in the Word of God. Uh, you don't need to teach them how to swim deftly in the world's lies. You need to teach them how to stand firmly on the truth of God's Word. Teaching them how to get in the slot and roll around and how to outstink the skunk. It's no way to help your young people. The better way is to teach them the truth of the Word of God and give them the wisdom that they need. Wisdom can spare you of some things. And I promise you, there's some folks in this room that say, Preacher, I sure wish I knew 30 years ago what I know today. I wish I had made different choices. I wish I knew how it would have hurt me. And I would have made a different choice. God help me and God help you to see that a young generation don't have to wait 30 years and a million scars to learn those things. Let them learn from our testimony that they don't have to make those decisions. So Solomon sets the stage for this narrative by establishing these principles. And he essentially wants you to know, hey, wisdom is important. Wisdom ought to be familiar to us in our life. When we have wisdom, we have a responsibility to respond to that wisdom in obedience. And if we do, there is great safety in wisdom. God don't tell us what to do because He's sitting up in heaven bored. God tells us what to do because He loves us and wants what's best for us. And then He begins to tell this story about this young man who is seemingly unwittingly walking by, although we'll even examine that here in a moment, by the house of what the Bible calls a strange woman. Now, the term strange woman means an immoral woman. There are times that it meant a harlot, and there are other times when it just meant a woman who was immoral. But it denotes someone who is wicked in their behavior. And it seems as though Solomon is trying to draw a parallel between a person who lives in a reckless manner, spiritually speaking, in their life, and sin which is always lurking and which is always lying wait to destroy our lives. And there are sort of three truths that I think shine in this passage that seem to stand forth more than all of the other details that surround them. Let me say before I get there, just because it it struck my heart, and I just want to mention it. You know, Solomon says this in verse 6, At the window of my house, I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding, passing through the street, near her corner, and he went the way to her house. Now, I don't know if Solomon's telling a story about something that actually happened, but you know, if you study the life of Solomon, you'll find that as an aged man, he married many wives. He gave his heart to pagan, idolatrous women, and it brought much ruin and much heartache and much sorrow in his life. Uh, Could be that he had no business living that close to the strange woman's house. 
And I'm just going to say this and get back to my message. Uh, Solomon, all this happens in the aged years of his life. Uh, You don't never grow too old for temptation and for sin. It might have been good for Solomon to take some of this advice that he was dishing out to others and to get himself as far away from this woman's house as he possibly could. Hey, his daddy got in trouble one day because he was, when he should have been down, gone to war, he was standing on a balcony and he was looking down over the houses and saw a woman bathing herself. It don't matter how old you are. It don't matter how long you've been saved. It don't matter how much experience you have living for the Lord. It don't matter what you've done in the past. And I rejoice in all of those things. But I'm just telling you, the devil ain't impressed with none of that. And it doesn't matter what all you've done. Don't think that you're above it. I'm not above it. You're not above it. David wasn't above it. Saul wasn't above it. And maybe he would have been better off, Solomon would have, if he had not found himself in that situation in the first place. Now notice these three thoughts, and then we'll be done tonight. It begins by telling about this young man. He's described as a youth, and verse 7 calls him a young man void of understanding. And whether literally or figuratively, Solomon describes himself looking out the window and watching this poor, foolish, ignorant young man walk by. But as he walks by, he walks close to the dwelling of this strange woman. And being close to there, this woman comes out and begins to beckon to him and lures him into her home. It might seem on uh, first blush that this young man did nothing wrong. He's just walking down the street. But in fact, if we look at his life, one of the shining truths of this text is how careless is the simple one. Say, preacher, he didn't do nothing wrong. Sure he did. He didn't prepare himself. He didn't do anything wrong, preacher. Sure he did. He he went the wrong way. Preacher, he didn't do anything wrong. Sure he did. He he was out when he shouldn't have been. See, we can make all kinds of excuses about how we just somehow got roped in uh, to sin. But the fact of the matter is, if we're to be real 100% honest, there are always things that we could have and should have done differently. Notice three thoughts that are here. Notice number one. Uh, You say, preacher, how can you accuse this young man of being careless? He's just walking down the street. That's right. But listen to how the Holy Ghost characterizes him, calls him a young man void of understanding. The Bible calls him a simple one, someone who is simplistic or simple minded, someone not lacking in education necessarily, but someone who has chosen to live oblivious to the dangers around them. And I would say the first point of carelessness in his life is the foolishness of his heart. Here's a word we could maybe use today, and it's the word naive. He's naive. He wants to pretend as though danger is not waiting there on the corner. We live in a time where naivete is epidemic, especially amongst the people of God. Why, preacher, it ain't no big deal. Why, preacher, it ain't really that dangerous. Why, preacher, what's the big deal? People say it about dress standards. They say it about music. They say it about associations. They say it about media that they consume. They say it about friendships and relationships that they engage in. In fact, it would seem as though uh, most Christians spend far more time being offended uh, at the uh, high standards of the Word of God than they do of the low living of the world around them. The fact of the matter is this. Hey, listen, he could have done something about it. He could have grown up, woke up, and noticed the danger around him. And the first thing you can do in your life, you say, preacher, I want to guard myself from sin. Well, the first thing you got to recognize is that sin's something worth guarding from. It's a danger. The devil wants to destroy you. He'll ruin your life. He'll ruin your kids. He'll ruin your marriage. And he won't do it by kicking in the front door. He'll do it through subtlety, as this woman did in this young man's life. 
his foolishness. He, he had been warned undoubtedly. He, he had been warned of the danger. But he chose to disregard it, to ignore it, to despise and disdain those that sought to try to prepare him and ready him for the onslaught of danger that was around him. And the first thing you can do is start taking sin serious. Recognize the danger that it holds for you. But then I notice a second thing. The Bible says in verse 8 that he was passing through the street near her corner. And he went the way to her house. It's funny the way that Solomon describes it. He describes it as though the young man is walking by and comes to a fork in the road and just happens to go the direction to this woman's house. And it'd be very easy to look at it and say, well, this young man, he had no clue what part of town that he was in. Let me say, number one, hey, it don't take long to find out what part of town you're in. Some of y'all ain't never been in a bad part of town. It don't take long to find out what part of town you're in. I remember one time years ago as a teenager, I don't know why we did this, but years ago as a teenager, me and some buddies, and Brother Kerry was one of them. In fact, he was a ringleader. We decided we decided we was going to go to Memphis. Yeah, I can hear you. I know. I feel that way now. Why? I don't know. We had no business in Memphis. We decided we was going to go to Memphis. And so we drove. And uh, at the time, I thought we was in a bad part of Memphis. Now I realize that's the only part of Memphis. And we, I remember driving through and stopping at a stop sign. He can tell you, I, this ain't no kind of preacher story. It really happened. We'd stop and stop and looked over and there was somebody on the side of the road spray painting the side of a building with a gang tag on it. We said, hurry up. <laughs> we just ran that stop sign, Ken. We didn't even stop. It don't, it don't take long. But now you're going to say, well, wait a minute, preacher. Give this young man a break. I mean, he didn't know what part of town he was in. How could he know? Listen carefully. Preacher, how could he know at the fork in the road that he would go the wrong way? To that, I'm going to say this. Why was he standing at a fork in the road in the first place? What was he even doing in that area? I'd say this. You say, preacher, how was he careless? One, the foolishness of his heart. Number two, the nearness of his path. See, if you walk close to sin, sooner or later you're going to, you're going, you're going to trip into it. Sooner or later you're going to take a wrong turn. I, I mean, listen, the, the, if you get as close as you possibly can to sin, sooner or later you're going to bump into it. And this young man, he started just going near her corner, but it didn't stay that way. Pretty soon he turned into her house. He would have never went to her house if he hadn't been on her corner in the first place. Preacher, what can I do? Well, stay as far away from sin as you possibly can. Paul in the New Testament says it this way. We ought to give none occasion to the flesh. Give none occasion to the flesh. In other words, don't give the flesh the room it needs to try to govern your life. So I see the nearness of his path. But then verse 9 gives us an important truth. The Bible says this is when it was happening. It was in the twilight. And by the way, there's a progressive statement here. In the twilight, then in the evening, then in the black and dark night. What that tells me, tells me he was there when he shouldn't have been and he stayed longer than he intended to. I'd say it this way. There's foolishness uh, or there's carelessness in the foolishness of his heart and in the nearness of his path. But number three, in the darkness of the hour, no respectable person had any business being out at that time of night. But here he was. But let me say this, even stepping beyond that, there is a parallel truth here to spiritual darkness as well. You say, preacher, how can I guard my heart? And how can I guard my life from from sin? Well, walk in the light. Don't walk in the darkness. 
When we talk about spiritual darkness, we talk about it in two perspectives. One is in the idea of ignorance. And you say, preacher, how can I guard myself? Well, get in the book. Get in the book. Read the Word of God. Let that, don't just get in the Word of God. Let the Word of God get in you. But then I would say, number two, darkness reflects the idea of sinfulness, of disobedience, of spiritual oppression. You say, preacher, how can I, how can I guard against sin? Not only, hey, listen, stay, stay close and stay clean. Stay clean. Don't let sin's darkness cover your life and there'll be far less danger. It was no accident that it was in the darkness of the hour. When I read this passage, I'm struck by how careless is the simple one. But then Solomon moves beyond that and begins to describe this strange woman. And one of the things, there's many things we could say about her and about her behavior. But the thing that to me is emphasized above all else is how calculating is the strange woman. You see, he may have stumbled by there, but she was on the hunt. He may have happenstanced by through carelessness, but she was lurking and looking. Can I tell you this? Hey, listen, don't think for one moment that the devil is stumbling around. He walketh about. That denotes the idea of of purpose, of planning, of calculating determination. And here's what he does. He seeketh whom he may devour. You may not have a plan for when you and the devil meet, but the devil does. You may not have a plan for when you are tempted with sin, but the devil does. And when we read this passage, I'll tell you the thing that that strikes me is this, this girl was ready for when this young man came walking by. There's two thoughts here. Notice number one, we see her laying in wait for him. Verse 10 says, Behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. Now, when we read that, I would just note that there's a possibility this woman was a harlot. Uh, although her her situation and her standing in life and in society would seem to suggest that she was not a prostitute. The fact that she makes these statements about peace offerings, the fact that she is familiar with this concept, the fact that she speaks of a good man of the house who's gone away on a journey. And it's possible that all this is a parable. It's possible, likewise, that even if it's real, that she's lying about some of these things. But all of the circumstances would seem to suggest to me That this woman, though a strange woman, though immoral in her ethics and immoral in her behavior, is probably not a harlot or a prostitute. Rather, the Bible says this, she had the attire of a harlot. Then it says this, and was subtle of heart. Notice two things about this woman. Number one, she is subtle. What does that mean? It means devious. It means sneaky. It means calculated in the way that she behaved and the way that she prayed upon him. We see that in two things. One, we see it that she dressed herself up as an harlot. It's possible that this woman sought to ensnare this man through any number of means. It's possible she thought to present herself as an harlot to see if uh, he would patronize her. But if that is the case, she goes on to instead realizing that maybe that would not be an avenue of possibility to begin to describe herself as holding a feast and partaking in the offering from a peace offering that was given. But irrespective of maybe some of these details, it's apparent to us that she She wasn't just kicking in the front door. She was calculated and sneaky and deceptive in how she approached him. Can I tell you this? The devil's not going to kick in your front door. He's going to come with a smile. 
He's going to come with a with a silver tongue and a slick word. He's going to come. I'll tell you one thing. He's not short on his excuses. And he'll have one picked out that'll appeal just for you. I see that she is subtle. Number two, I notice this, that she is searching. Verse 11 says she is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now is she without, now in the streets, and here's this language, lieth in wait at every corner. In other words, sin don't stay in the house. It don't just wait on you to find it, but rather sin will always come looking for you. The Bible tells us our sin will find us out. And the truth of the matter is, I wish I could tell you that if you never pursue sin, sin will never pursue you. But can I point you to the Old Testament and to the testimony of Joseph? Joseph wasn't doing anything wrong. Joseph was right where God wanted him to be. Uh, Right there, the Lord was with Joseph. We're told that the Lord was with Joseph, both in the prison and in the palace. He comported himself appropriately as a young man should. Everything was right in his house. Uh, He didn't go looking for Potiphar's wife, but she came looking for him. Hey, listen, sin is searching. And I understand again that sin is not a person. But certainly the flesh is craving sin and the devil is seeking every opportunity to ensnare us in sin. We see her lying in wait. Then notice number two, her luring. Say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, she didn't just sit back and and leave it up to chance. She did everything she could to try to entice this young man into her home. And can I say that the devil and the flesh and the world are going to do everything they can to entice us to commit sin. What, What did she do? Well, notice three things. Notice number one, her approach. Verse 13 says this. She caught him and kissed him and with an impudent face said unto him. You know what impudent mean? It means stone-faced or hard. It means she didn't come docile. It means she didn't come demur. But rather, when she approached him, she approached him with confidence and authority and commanded him. And this is what she said, verse 14. I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I've always been fascinated by this. What is the lie she's telling him? The Old Testament, the peace offering would be given to reconcile an individual to God. And she is claiming that she has gone and offered a sacrifice to the Lord. Whenever that sacrifice was given, there was a portion, the fat and the kidneys and the call that would be burned before the Lord. And then there would be a portion that would be given to the priest. And the priest lived off of those sacrifices. But the remainder of the carcass would be sent home with the worshiper. And what was customary was for them to come home and have a feast with their family or with their friends or with their neighbor and to enjoy that meal and to rejoice in the fact that they had been reconciled unto God. And here's what she says. She says, I've been down to church today. I've been worshiping the Lord. And I've come back and I've got a big old Sunday dinner. ready. There's Jews, so it was Saturday dinner. Amen ready to eat, and you just happen to be walking by. In fact, she says, when I did this, I had in mind that I wanted to invite you over so you could come and rejoice and enjoy this time of festivity in gratitude to the Lord. Now, knowing what you and I know about this woman and about her design and her plans, what a nefarious and devious lie this was to tell. But here's what she did. Number one, she feigned innocence. You'd be amazed... How innocent the devil can make sin look. 
She says, well, I'm, I don't have anything improprietary in, in what I'm wanting to do. I, I just happen to have a meal. And won't you just come in and enjoy this good meal with me? In fact, it's not just a meal. It's a religious meal. We're going to come in. We're going to thank the Lord for what he's done in our life. How many times have you seen Christians make compromising decisions in their life? And they always have some real spiritual reason why for them it's not sin. That spiritual reason didn't come from them. It came straight out of hell. The devil always seeks to give some sanctified reason. And can I remind you that uh, in, uh, when the uh, devil came uh, to the Lord Jesus and tempted him in the wilderness, he didn't do it with curses, he did it with verses. He came and quoted scripture to him, and the Lord Jesus quoted right back at him. We find in, in this passage, she feigned innocence. Notice number two, she feigned interest. In verse 15, she says, Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. She says, I came looking for you because I care about you. I'm interested in you. In fact, it's a great privilege and a great honor that I've asked you to come and to partake in this meal. You know, the devil always makes it seem like it's in your interest to commit sin. I've known people in my life. You have known anyone in your life like this. They always got a plan. And this plan involves you and them. And don't worry, because it's always going to work out great for everybody. You ever known anybody like this? Usually they're about to ask you for money. And they always have a plan. And you don't understand. It's all going to work out great. Don't worry. And they try to make it seem as though really they're just interested in helping you. You know, the devil does that to us. He'll say things like, well, you deserve to cut loose every now and then. You deserve sometimes to see your own needs, your own desires. He always tries to make it seem like it's always about you. Hey, listen, sin is, I want to be careful how I say this. We sin because we're self-interested. But sin in in its design is not about us. It's always about the devil. It's always about defying God. It's always about hurting the Lord. It's never because it's good for you. Because what God says is bad for you cannot be good for you. I see her approach. Notice number two, I see her allure. Verse 16. She says this, I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. Now, I'll be the first to admit to you that some of the things culturally described here are probably lost on you and me. I'm going to be honest with you. If somebody said, now, preacher, you look tired, won't you take a nap? I put a bunch of tapestry and carved works on the bed, and some some Egyptian fine linen, and then I sprayed a bunch of myrrh, aloe, and cinnamon on it, I'd say, you just keep that. I'll take a nap on the couch, you know? But at this time, what she had done, she had bedecked her bed to make it an alluring place. And what did she do? Well, notice two things here. Notice, number one, she tried to make sin comfortable. She said, I've got just the comfortable place for us to perform this illicit act. You know, it's amazing how high priority we put on comfort and convenience. We basically have a society today completely crafted around the idea of comfort and convenience. Yeah, hey, listen, sell all our farmland to China, sell all our politicians to China. Long as I can Amazon Prime it and get it in two days, who cares? That's the society we're living in today. We're all that really 
matters is how we can make it easier and more comfortable and more convenient. Well, that inclination, that impulse has always been present in the disposition of man. And we see it here in this passage. The devil's always going to make it as easy as he can for you to commit sin. He's going to make it comfortable. He's going to give you opportunities. He's going to give you occasions. And that's part of the problem is we live in a society where we think an opportunity is an endorsement. We think if you can do something, why shouldn't you do something? Oh, my soul, there's all kinds of things that you can do. You can bash your head against the wall, but I don't recommend it to you. Listen, you can get involved in sin, but I sure don't recommend it to you. He'll try to make sin comfortable. He'll try to make it easy. He'll try to make it appealing. And that's the second thing that she did. She said, come, let us take our fill of love until the morning and let us solace ourselves with love. She uses very uh, language that seems to be, how do I say this, not respectable, but she's trying to put a, a decent spin on what she is describing. And what's she trying to do? She's trying to say it's going to be an enjoyable time. She's trying to allure and entice him. Let me say it this way. The devil works hard to make sin comfortable. But number two, he works hard to make it desirable. We see this. We used to all the time anyway. When people still watch commercials and things, you'd see the the beer commercials come on. And I think one of the requirements to be on a beer commercial is that you can't be a beer drinker. Because I've seen beer drinkers. And they don't look like the people on those commercials. And they always try to paint it up and make it seem as though it's this glamorous, glorious lifestyle. Listen, I, I, I've been there. I, I've, I, I've walked the wards of hospitals and seen people whose bodies was devastated by drink. I, I've sat and wept with parents when they, when they cried trying to figure out uh, why the drugs had claimed their their child, though they had prayed and begged God and asked Him to do everything. Sin's not a desirable thing. I've seen people whose homes have been destroyed by infidelity. Sin's not a desirable thing. I understand the temptation, the impulse, the desire to do wrong. I understand that it exists in us to be susceptible to it. But one of the things the devil will always try to do is beautify sin and make it seem as though there's no ill consequences. I see her allure. And then notice number three, I see her assurances. Notice what she says in verse 19. For the good man is not at home. He is gone a long journey. He taketh a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. She's speaking undoubtedly here about her husband. And she's saying he's not home right now. There's really no danger. And and we'll know before he ever gets here because he took a bag of money. And I know how long it'll last. And he said an appointed day that he's going to come back. Why would she need? Why would she need to make these assurances to a man with a clear conscience? The only reason she'd say this is because he and her both knew what they were doing was sin. And so she makes these assurances. You know, the devil, why does he have to work so hard to convince you that God's going to let you get away with it? Why does he have to convince you so hard that you ain't never going to be caught? Could it be because he's appealing to that guilt that's in your conscience? Notice two things that she assured. Number one, she assured that it was done in secret. She says the good man is not at home. He has gone a long journey. 
Don't worry, nobody will know, nobody will see. There's no one to tell on us. There's no one to find out. Something she didn't know, especially if this was a literal story that took place, is that there was somebody standing up in the window, watching down, that was hearing every word that was being said. And can I remind you of something? The devil's going to come along. He's going to say, nobody will ever find out. Nobody will ever know. Who would ever tell? You can keep it a secret. You can keep your testimony. But hey, there's somebody standing, looking out the window, seeing the way that you're living. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and the unrighteous. He sees all things and nothing escapes his, his sight. By the way, let's just use a little New Testament dispensational theology here. You understand that you and I as members of the body of Christ, uh, our husband is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're wed unto him. When we engage in sin, we're committing spiritual infidelity. Only difference between us and them here is our husband always sees what we do. Always sees. She wanted to assure him that it's done in secret. And then number two, that it was done in safety. Says, oh, sure, he's coming back one day. But don't worry. We've got plenty of head notice before he comes back. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it alarming? How we somehow can always convince ourselves that we will get away with it. Everyone else doesn't get away with it. But somehow we are going to get away with it. We convince ourselves that. We'll get it right before the good man comes home. We'll set it in order before we have to stand before God one day. There's a day appointed, and we don't know when it is, but surely it must be a long time off. But can I remind you, hey, he could be walking through the door any minute. The Bible describes the return of the Lord Jesus Christ as imminent. You know what the word imminent means? It means at the door. He is at the door at all times. And one day we're going to have to answer to him. Finally, and I'm done tonight. I'll be very quick here. Look at verse 21. If there are three thoughts, the first is how careless is the simple one. The second is how calculating is the strange woman. But the third thought that we see is the sad conclusion of this tale and how cruel is sin's wickedness. Verse 21 through 23 sums it up. And it says this first in verse 21. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. Now, that does not suggest that he had no part in this activity. It does not even suggest that he was forced to do this against his will altogether. But we could maybe say it this way. She got him to do things that he would have never thought he would have done. You know how cruel sin is? Look first at his humiliation. You can imagine, I don't want to be vivid in my, in my language or the portrait that I paint before you tonight, but you can imagine as he wakes up the next day in shame and despair, considering how wicked and vile that he had conducted himself. She's not bothered by it. She's a wicked woman. She doesn't care. It doesn't bother her. And I'll tell you this, you know, the devil's never felt guilty. Never felt guilty. He don't have the capacity to. But you'll always feel guilty when you commit sin. It's, it's not that he did some, that, that, that she literally forced him in the sense that she made him, but it's that she convinced him to do things that were not in keeping with how he normally would have behaved. And you've heard it said before, but I'll say it again tonight. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you ever planned to stay. I see his humiliation. Notice verse 22 says this. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction 
of the stocks. Solomon says she just led him about like he was some tame farm animal. Just put a leash on him and led him right to the slaughterhouse. Notice his subjugation. Now all of a sudden he's got a new master in his life. He's not living in freedom. He's not doing what he wants. That's what the devil says when he tempts you. He says, oh, do what you want. But he don't plan on you doing what you want. He plans on you doing what he wants. And just like this woman did to this young man, he'll put a yoke on you and he'll make you plow in his work and in his wickedness. And then when he's done, he's squeezed every ounce out of your life he can. He'll send you straight to the slaughterhouse without a moment of guilt. And then notice verse 23. The Bible says this. That he goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, as a fool to the correction of the stocks, verse 22. Till when? Till a dart strike through his liver. As a bird hasteth to the snare and knoweth not that it is for his life. Here's what he says. He says something this young man could have never known when he walked that path was that he was walking a funeral march to his own death and destruction. That he was literally signing his own death warrant. And all it would have took is if he had been uh, aware enough, sober enough, sharp enough, and competent enough to not walk in that path in the first place. Nobody ever signs up to be a drunkard, but they do say yes to that first drink. Nobody signs up to be an addict, but they do take that first hit. Nobody ever decides, generally speaking, that they want to live a life of of moral brokenness, but they first open their hearts to someone who has ill designs upon them. And there they land, like this young man, never planning for it to happen. You know, I don't know that there's a single person in hell that ever planned on being there. And I can tell you right now, if you go down to some of these places I'm telling you about of broken people whose lives have been decimated by sin, they didn't plan on going there, but what happened? Well, they decided they wouldn't watch where they carried their feet. They wouldn't be cautious in the way they lived their life. They wouldn't live consecrated and close. And it didn't take long. And the devil destroyed them. I hope it's not you. I hope you'll walk circumspectly tonight. Let's bow with our heads bowed together. Our eyes closed as a musician comes to the piano. The altar's open. Here's what I want to ask you first. Is there someone that you know in your life that is walking this same reckless path? That they're behaving, living, acting in such a way that if they don't change, it's going to lead to their destruction. If you have someone in your life, might be somebody you're very close to, it might be somebody that you barely know, just know them in passing, but the Holy Ghost brought them to your heart and mind, why don't you come down, lift their name up to the throne of God, ask God to get a hold of them, to get their attention before it's everlasting too late. And maybe there's someone in here. Now, we, we've got, listen, we've got a good bed of people sewn up on this altar. You ain't going to be the only person at this altar. You ain't going to be the first. So let me ask you this. Are you are you serious enough about your walk with Christ? Are you honest enough about your life that if there's something in your life that's leading you in that direction, would you be willing to come down, confess it to God, ask forgiveness, and ask God to cleanse your life before it's too late? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.